Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live. I am your host Viz and tonight we have writer, director Jason Brennan with us. Jason's new movie is called Le Inhuman. Did I I screwed that up. I am so not in tune with the French language, but it's called Le Inhumane. Got I'll get it eventually. Anyway, the movie is coming out to video on demand August 23rd on your favorite video on demand platform. Like I said, Jason here wrote it and directed it. Jason, thank you so much for being our guest. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Viz. I'm doing good. I'm uh, actually super excited to be on your show. I'm excited to talk about this film. This film is really amazing. It has so many layers to it that we're going to start to at least break down. And the first question that I have for you is the film's foundation is built around the native uh, North American, South American, even mythology lore. So what inspired you to write this story around the uh, Wendigo? Um, I mean, I mean, the story was, was a long time in, in the making, to be honest. Um, so I kind of built my story the other way around where I wanted to kind of touch on where we are today in, in society and, and that, that, you know, wanting to find yourself in so many different ways and trying to losing grip with reality and that, that, that ever, you know, that ever present feeling of, of, of being malcontent with who you are or, mm-hmm. or what's around you. Um, and then it brought me back to the Wendigo story. So my, my dad's first nations, my mom is Quebecois French. So basically I, I, I grew up in both those cultures, but, um, I remember ever since I was like way younger, you know, the Wendigo story is something that you joke around, uh, about around a campfire when you're a kid with cousins and uncles and, 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 you know, it's kind of like one of those, those, uh, spooky men, you know, Oh, be careful. Wendigo's going to get you. Oh, what's that noise? It must be the Wendigo. You're sitting around a fire. And then as I, I started getting older, then you, you talk to some of the elders and, and you start realizing that this is a lot more present than you would think. Mm-hmm. And and for many of these elders, I mean, the Wendigo story is still something that is very strong. And, and to be honest, it's, it's actually, it's still taboo in many communities to talk, even talk about the Wendigo. Wow. Because there's a lot of communities that believe that um, just simply by talking about it, you are giving it power to manifest itself. Wow. Um, so, I mean, in, in my case, like I mentioned, I, I used to spend my summers away from my community. I, I, you know, I live two hours away from my community. I, I, I'm just outside of Ottawa. Um, so when, when you're kind of half First Nations or you're always questioning yourself about where you belong, what, what are your roots? And, and you kind of go through that kind of like, wanting to understand who you are and find your place. And, yeah. and to me, I think a lot of the things is basically to fill a certain void. And, and that was, that was the main premise for the film. Okay. That makes perfect sense. There is a very revealing piece of dialogue in uh, towards the end of the film where uh, Matthew is having a conversation and somebody tells him people just take and take from the land. Is that a sort of a social commentary as to how us humans are neglecting our 
you know, nature, mother nature, the planet? Yeah, most definitely. I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, in society today, I think, I think we're, 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 I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think we're more in, in that, that ultra consumption mode where everybody's just, you know, it just isn't like before. You know, yeah. I think I think things are just the way they are now and people are taking and taking and taking without giving back. And, and again, this is this is the inner being of the Wendigo where, you know, that that hunger that can never be uh, fulfilled, you know, and, and man, you know, that's the way man is yeah. in many ways for a lot of people. And and, and that was that commentary is that we, we just oftentimes we get to that point where we take and we take and we take until we'll be too far gone. And that's, if I bring them back to the Wendigo story, um, that is when you kind of fall prey to the Wendigo is, is either the Wendigo finds you and consumes you, or you eventually become a Wendigo yourself. That's what makes it so fascinating with the Wendigo, because depending on, it has so many different narrations depending on where, which people you ask, what culture. It could be an elemental spirit just taking care of the land. Other people have it as a shapeshifter, a, a werewolf. Uh, it could be Bigfoot. And that's why I think this story has endured for as long as it has. Now, do you, the main character, whose name is Matthew, had a very traumatizing experience when he was a young boy. Do you think, was it the death of his father or him having to return back to his childhood home that sort of pushed him over the edge? I think it's more of a progression of him losing who he is and having to change and forget who he is to become successful or what he thinks is successful in his life. And all the compromises that he's had to have done to get there. So, I mean, a lot of people believe that the Wendigo is, 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 is present. It's mm -hmm. always there. And depending on how you live and how you act will dictate whether or not you're going to, you know, or you're going to succumb to certain, certain vices that might, might be around you. And, and for the main character in this film, I think for him, he goes through a traumatic experience. He decides to leave his community to pursue uh, his professional career, that of being a neurosurgeon. But basically there's a price to be paid to get there. Mm -hmm. And although he's left and he's left everything behind, he's had to fill that void. Yeah. And so for me in the film, I've always, you know, without hopefully giving away too much, he's had a run in with the Wendigo when he's young. Mm -hmm. And eventually just that one run in has kept the creature close by for the rest of his life oh. waiting for him to fall prey and to really go down that slippery slope of, of, of giving in. That's, that's, that's a, that's a very interesting take right there. Uh, like we talked about the Wendigo represents itself in different ways to, depending on the culture that you talk to. How did you come up with how you wanted to represent the Wendigo in the film? Well, that's, that's it. I mean, and for me, it's very important to state that. And, and it's in, at the beginning of my film is that the Wendigo that's represented in the film is the one that I know from stories from my own community. Okay. Uh, stories are like you mentioned, stories are different from, you know, Western, more out West in Canada and, and stuff. So 
for me growing up, there isn't one Wendigo story. It's always little bits and pieces that you hear. And and I remember one of my, uh, one of my older uncles shared a story with me about a person that he thought had been turned by the Wendigo or had eventually be- become a Wendigo wow. because of a certain thing. The fellow had ended up killing his own his own baby. Uh, and this is like in, in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people kind of felt that he had fallen prey to the Wendigo. So it's always been the way that I imagined it is, is kind of like some of those stories and then kind of digging in a bit of research and then piecing it together and bringing it to how I view it in terms of, of obviously from some personal experience in terms mm-hmm. of, well, how, how can I, how I, I saw the story taking place today, because I think, I think the Wendigo story, like a lot of different things in, in, in indigenous cultures, I mean, you're using a premise to kind of give a certain life lesson, mm-hmm. um, you know? So to me, it was that it was, it was kind of like, the Wendigo story kind of is, is is to teach people about the togetherness of a community and, yeah. and how that should should come before your your own self, uh, your your self desires and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, now, you represented the Wendigo in uh, various different ways as a supernatural entity manifesting from uh, a mist to us seeing the full blown uh, creature itself. Would you say that the main character, Matthew's actions, choices, were they driven by his desire of running away from that traumatic childhood experience? Or were they directly influenced by the Wendigo itself since it latched onto him from a, when he was a little boy? No, I think it's a bit of both. It's really, it's, it's, it, it kind of, uh, the creature manifests itself because of him running away mm-hmm. and sort of like, you know, it's it's kind of like the Wendigo is there and setting certain things in motion because he's he's possibly identified a prey. Yeah. You know, so he's putting things in front of Matthew, kind of like low hanging fruit, if you wish, and uh, hoping that it eventually becomes a victim. And and then, again, I don't want to give too much away, <laughs> but basically, you know, eventually there's a fight that happens where, where Matthew's fighting for his life throughout the whole process. So, I mean, it's more um, in terms of the Wendigo, I mean, from, from in the movie, um, <clears throat> the mist and the way that it would walk is that, again, these are stories from old, old stories from elders that were, were, were shared through oral traditions, but that were uh, documented in, in old writings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from people that had said that they had, they thought they had seen the Wendigo or they had crossed with the Wendigo. Um, my, my grandmother, uh, had, had, I mean, my, my grandparents were poor when they were on the community and, and they, they used to have to walk to get their water at the well. And, and my grandmother went with two of my aunties when, when they were younger and she, and, and my grandmother remembers telling had told my auntie, and it's funny because my aunt only remembered this after when when I was making the movie. Mm-hmm. She said she she told me I remember going to the well and, and grandma telling me, "Quick, we need to get back up the hill because look over there, I could see the tall man." And they referred to that creature as the tall man. Wow. So it was just That's yeah, it was creepy. just one, yeah, it's just so just a bunch of little stories like that. So when I took that and I brought it in, and then again, wanting to relay it to 
personal experience that if I did see the Wendigo myself, how how do I think it would look? Yeah, and how it would come to be. To me, that's how I kind of saw it. Well, that leads me to my next question. Uh, the majority of monster creature films that we have seen throughout the decades. The monster is usually seen at night, okay? We get in a, a barely a look at it. It's nighttime darkness. You went out of your way to show us this creature in broad daylight. Uh, what was the significance of that for you? Did you really want us to get a good look and see how scary this thing is? Um, I wish I was that smart, but <laughs> I'm not. Uh, it's actually a budgetary thing. It was just too hard. It was just too hard to light the forest at night and to bring in the VFX and everything like that. I mean, uh, we're extremely lucky in Canada because we we, we get our films funded through uh, different government programs, mm -hmm. but yet we do not make very many genre films um, through those different funding bodies. So our, our budgets are still fairly limited. Uh, and it just, it, it came down to that choice. So, I mean, we, we, I kept the creature at night, except for that one scene. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Uh, now you talked about, uh, budgets and VFX and all that. The whole film I think was done very well by you as a director, as it encompassed a very dark an eerie film of eerie feeling throughout the entire film it was always overcast just the feeling was very dark and bleak it was sort almost sort of like the cloud hanging over matthew himself um as a director did you do anything special or, or did the weather just cooperate with you where it was just cloudy every time you guys shot outside it was a bit of both, um, and, and I was lucky to work with a really great DOP here in Quebec uh, that's done some really good stuff, and he understood right off the bat that we needed to avoid anything that was overblown or too too bright. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we also wanted to, I mean, for, for anybody that spent a lot of time in the forest um, by themselves, just when it when there's no sun out there, it seems like the atmosphere is just completely different. Mm -hmm. Where you're second guessing what's what's around you. It's like it's kind of like kind of like a cartoon, you know. The sun comes out and it's like everything's happy and, and go lucky. Yet you kill the sun and it gets dark and it gets gloomy, and it's a whole different setting. So we 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 uh, some days, although we did have some sun, we were able to play with the camera a bit to kind of kill that out. Um, but then again, I mean, in terms of the film itself, I, I wanted to make sure also that we kind of kept that, just that uneasy feeling. Yeah. So keep it really contrasty, really dark, really, and and, and there's a there's a, a shift from the moment we go from the the urban areas to the the, uh, the forest, the more rural. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there there is that shift. It isn't too much, but there's still a shift there in terms of. Uh, uh, of the look of the film. Well, it was very noticeable. I mean, I caught on to it, and you maintained it throughout the whole, uh, throughout the entire film. Now, what I found interesting is Matthew, going back to Matthew again, I mean, the story is about Matthew and his father to some degree as well, but he grows up to become, like you said, a neurosurgeon 
which indicates to the audience that even though he suffered this traumatic experience, he did sort of find a way to move on with his life. Why was it important uh, for the story to make him a surgeon? Um, because I thought that there was a, a bunch of different things that it, when you talk about layers, to have him become a surgeon, the backstory to that is he's trying to understand if what he saw so many years ago is really what he saw. And then seeing the interaction with his dad and, and always questioning himself about is my dad possibly crazy? Am I a bit crazy? Mm -hmm. uh, and there was also the fact that I wanted to put him in a role where he's kind of like, because he's left the community, he's he's put himself in a position where he, he kind of wants to compensate by, by shooting for a big high-profile job, hopefully that'll allow him to forget, you know, what that he's kind of walked away from his family and from his roots, you know, so to kind of drown that out. And also I thought, you know, um, indigenous storytellers have been, you know, especially in the last five years, we've got some really great uh, writers and directors. And, and we're at that point now where we want to be able to show, you know, different, you know, different mm -hmm. settings, different, different, yeah. you know, different characters, uh, developed characters, not always the, easy uh kind of like the easy mode that's been there for for previous yeah uh, yeah so that's that's why I, I mean i thought neurosurgeon was a really great one i mean it was why not you know why not because i think that's where we, we're at i think you hit the answer right on the head earlier when you said he's he seeked the answers basically in science uh instead of folklore uh now there is a, a rift that grows between Matthew and his father. Um, is it because after that incident, when he was a boy, his father urged him to put it behind him, move on, don't think about it. But we find out that his father himself, without letting his son know, was being consumed by it as well. Is that what caused the rift between father and son? I think the, the, the relationship with the father and son is that the, the father is indirectly trying to protect him mm -hmm. by kind of trying to tell him or convince him that he imagined the whole thing until they get to that point where he tells his son, listen, I don't know what we saw, but it reminds me of that story. Yeah, And that's kind of like the point in the story where the, where the father, once the, the dad shares that story, um, that's when in my story or in, in, in my backstory that he decides that, okay, well, I can't stay here anymore. This is too much, you know? And slowly Matt kind of gets on that, that road to, to find his way out of the community. Um, so it isn't necessarily a rift that the dad wanted, but more Matthew wanted that rift where he's like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else because this for me is, isn't working. It's not making sense. Uh, mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you. Now, uh, Matthew's life throughout the film, he's, yeah, he's a neurosurgeon, but beneath those layers, he's falling apart, okay? He has a, a problem with controlled substances. Um, his marriage is not doing so well. And it takes, finally, when his dad passes away and him being forced to go back to his childhood home and confront 
the thing that has been terrifying him all these years. When you came up with the ending of this film, which, by the way, as we've talked about before we went live, is absolutely amazing. You guys are not going to believe the plot twist in this film. But did you struggle on how to close this story out? To be honest, no. It was just one of those things. And, and I mean, it's... it's um, listen, it's my first film, but it, everything kind of fell into place. Um, you know, where it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was I was blessed or, or something like that. But you know, just everything seemed to make sense, and as the pieces were fitting, that the, the twist was there, and it was like, well, it makes sense to mm -hmm. me. It made sense, and it was a nice way. I mean, I wanted to tell a story that 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 everybody could relate to, and and everybody, whether or not you're you're, you're from an indigenous culture or not, you have an interest in, in genre films, you know, that's, you know, yeah. I think there's something in there for everybody. Um, so to wrap it, to wrap it up in the way that it is to me is, is, is uh, to be honest, I, I'm not going to bullshit. I was lucky. <laughs> yeah, well, you hit it. I mean, you, you scored a home run on that one, Jason. I want to thank you so much again, guys, the movie, I'm just going to say the, with my old, good old American accent, Len human coming Lean out. Away. Let in humane. There you go. Yes, exactly. Coming out Tuesday, August 23rd. Uh, be sure to check it out on your video on demand platform of choice. You're not going to regret it. There are twists, turns, surprises, character development. Jason, you did a fantastic job with this film. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share before we go? Thanks for having me visit. It was really a pleasure, Chad. It was a great chat, and I just loved, you know, your take and hearing about what went into the story behind this film. And what I realized over these last 20 minutes is that every person that watches this film is going to walk away with their own interpretation. And that's just fine, you know? I think that's how, somewhere in the back of your mind, you most filmmakers design films and make stories and write them for the audience to walk away with their own take on it. And I think that's exactly what you did with this film. So I want to again thank our guest, writer-director Jason Brennan. The movie's coming out August 23rd. On behalf of Jason and myself, I want to thank our live audience and those of you who will be watching this later on. Have a great night. Stay safe and stay walking. Good night, everybody.